Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron, Principal of Barron Public Affairs. Over the years, our firm has helped some of the largest organizations in the country and the world grapple with complex political problems. And the work we do puts us at the center of politics, policy, culture, economics, and business. And we find that the solutions to some of the most difficult problems confronting the business and political world uh, involve a myriad of factors that in some cases develop over decades. The purpose of this podcast is to explore those factors, those trends, and to provide a path forward as the world deals with a protracted period of political volatility. I'm very pleased to be joined by two of my colleagues, Johnny Fluger and Jeremy Furchcott. Johnny Fluger serves as the firm's chief strategist. He leads our competition practice, spends a lot of time thinking about business-to-business competition through the arena of politics and has advised the firm and guided the firm on some of our most uh, high-profile and difficult challenges. Also joined by Jeremy Furchgott. Jeremy leads our public sector practice as well as our China practice, and Jeremy has also led quite a bit of our work in the healthcare and transportation sectors. Both are my trusted colleagues and provide invaluable insights to almost every project that Barron Public Affairs manages. Johnny, welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. And Jeremy, great to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be here. Today, the House of Representatives has taken a historic step toward continued prosperity in America, reform in China, and peace in the world. If the Senate votes, as the House has just done, to extend permanent normal trade relations with China, it will open new doors of trade for America and new hope for change in China. Today's podcast will explore the subject of our political risk brief titled The Vote That Changed the World. That title refers to a vote that was taken in the United States Senate 20 years ago this month, September, when the United States Senate, by a margin of 85 to 13, approved permanent normal trade relations with the People's Republic of China. We say that that vote was the vote that changed the world because that vote, the approval of PNTR with China, made enactment of that measure inevitable and really set the stage for the growth in the U.S.-China trade relationship that occurred in the 15-plus years that followed. And in fact, on that day, the promises that were made about PNTR with respect to allowing the United States to access low-priced goods and creating jobs for China, those promises did in fact come to fruition. The United States gained access to an almost endless supply of low-priced consumer products, and China created millions and millions of jobs in low-wage manufacturing and related industries. But there were a series of other promises, assurances that were given to the American people that were not met. And the failure of those promises, of those assurances to come to fruition, created a very big part of the dissatisfaction that manifested itself years later, and we believe in a significant way created the populism that now so dominates the political environment. So we wanted to take a, a step back to go and look at the forces that were emerging in September of 2000, what led to that vote in the Senate, what's transpired since, and what does it mean for the future, not simply the election that will occur in a couple of months, but in the years ahead. I should note that I have the unique distinction among this group of three uh, on the podcast today of having been working in Congress at that time, so that dates me quite a bit. Uh, but But even at that time, 20 years ago, I think it was pretty clear that the PNTR debate was an important one. And there was a lot of intensity around the debate. I think there was a strong expectation that PNTR would in fact pass. It turns out that 
although the Senate vote really was the final hurdle, the House vote was a was a closer vote. But both of the votes, meaning the, the votes in the House and the Senate, had a very interesting coalition, uh, both of those in favor and against the measure, that I think foreshadowed something important about the politics that would emerge many years later. So the seed of today's populism could be seen uh, in how the vote how the vote shaped up, and we'll talk more about that in the course of this episode. I want to turn to uh, Johnny, who is our resident expert. Uh, on, on a lot of the ideological trends that we see today and tracks those things very carefully. And Johnny, I would like to get your thoughts on how you look back at that moment, look at today, see the similarities, see the differences, and sort of guide our audience on the importance of that vote and really how it doesn't get quite the attention that perhaps it deserves. There are two trends, Jonathan, that come to mind immediately when we uh, talk about the vote. The first is that the vote occurred some six months after the NASDAQ high of March 10th, 2000, and the dot-com bubble. And I, I do believe that there was this palpable sense that the United States corporate sector, the United States economy was going to be dominant in the industries that, that mattered most significantly for the future. So if you look back at the top 10 companies by market capitalization in 2000. They were Microsoft, GE, Cisco, Walmart, ExxonMobil, Intel, Lucent, IBM, Citigroup, and AOL. And what's significant to me about this, this roster relative to the roster of the, the largest companies by market capitalization is the, the presence then and the absence today of the leading telecommunications hardware companies in the world and the absence at the time of Chinese competitors. And I think that this was one of the factors that drove you know, policymakers who may have been reluctant to, to ultimately support PNTR. There was, there was not a sense that in the, the highest value, most important verticals that there would be Chinese competitors. I guess you could say, although GE arguably is a shell of itself, in 2000, there still is no Chinese jet engine manufacturer that can compete with the likes of GE. But there is a, a company called Huawei that is in the peer group of Cisco systems today globally. And there are uh, lots of, you know, dominant application companies, you know, who compete with the likes of the AOL of, of yesteryear. So that would be my first thought, Jonathan. The second thought is when you look at at all of the the trends and and vectors that led to PNTR, one that I think is very significant and that also was a factor for decades in U.S. policy making in the Middle East is the application to this area of a secularized missionary zeal, quite literally, that is a residue of or an artifact of U.S. Christian missionaries' engagement with the region over decades, if not centuries. If you look at, besides the expected big names in China policy, such as Henry Kissinger, if you look at many of the people who were most influential leading up to the PNTR vote, they were related on a familial basis to either because they were you know, raised in pre-revolutionary China or their parents were. They had a familial connection to Protestant, and in most cases, Presbyterian missionaries in China. And I think that despite 
evidence of China's, of the PRC's mercantilism and, and certain bits of evidence that suggested the PRC wouldn't, wouldn't liberalize, there, there was almost a, a belief among policymakers, which had been taken from, from this community, a, a theological or religious belief that this time would be different. This status would bring a kind of new dialogue into fruition. Jeremy, as a longtime China watcher and someone who has a great sense of, of Chinese history, not just of the past 20 years, but many, many centuries, and I know you, you, you track it, uh, how the, that history affects today's events. I know you track that very closely. Try to put into context from a China point of view, the environment around 2000, the environment today, what connects them, and how this PNTR vote on the U.S.-China trade relationship and its development really fits into China's grand strategy as we get into the domestic U.S. politics, set the stage a little bit for us internationally. Sure. And I, I want to start just by building on Johnny's comment about Protestant missionaries in China. Historically, outside observers had noted that Protestant missionaries to China had a certain enthusiasm and optimism about their ability to affect change in China, in contrast with the approach of Catholic missionaries who tended to have a lower profile, tended to less explicitly or externally communicate optimism about their ability to change the Chinese people. But in the eyes of certain observers, including notably Owen Lattimore in his book High Tartary, which is a travelogue of his journeys through Western China in the early 1930s, he notes that the Catholic missionary movement arguably was more successful in China, despite its lack of external fanfare and, and enthusiasm. So it could be that the thread that Johnny is noting that goes back really almost a century, it could be that PNTR is really just the latest ramification of an age-old difference within Western societies about how much optimism to have in the West's ability to influence China. And it appears that PNTR has shown, to your point, Jonathan, that the political and social changes that many American elites believed would occur in China, those changes did not occur. I would also like to emphasize the history over the past two centuries, if not more, of Western powers, including the United States, beginning in the 1840s or so, trying to gain access to the Chinese market. And China's, at certain times, explicit resistance to Western commerce and at other times, tacit acceptance of, of a partial Western commercial foothold in the country. PNTR is just the latest chapter in a saga that extends over the course of centuries, which really is about China's struggle to establish its own relationship with the West. And we are now in a very contentious chapter in that saga. I would also say I don't think it's a coincidence that PNTR proceeded in 2000. In many ways, it can be argued that the period right around 2000, right before certainly and in that year, was the height of post-Reagan optimism. It's almost hard to imagine now, but at that time, 10 years after the United States prevailed in the Cold War over the Soviet Union, the possibilities for the United States were limitless. It was the end of history, the notion that liberal democracy inevitably would prevail across the world and introducing China to US-style market capitalism would simply expedite 
China's certain march towards liberalization, democratization. And so the U.S. under President Clinton and then President Bush after him really proceeded with a tremendous sense that history was on our side and that things almost had to work out for the best. And that China, by creating this class of middle-class consumers, middle-class workers and families, would embrace the values of the United States and the triumph of democracy that really began with the U.S. victory in the Cold War and then had proceeded in the years afterward would continue apace. And so in in many ways is a, a sharp contrast to the current moment as we speak today, which I think safe to say is one of much greater pessimism, one of much greater caution, the notion of limits on U.S. power, especially following not only the Great Recession, but of course the Iraq War. In many ways, the year 2000 couldn't be more different from the year 2020. But again, that optimism, that confidence that, that was still palpable following the victory in the Cold War really, I think, did lead inexorably uh, towards PNTR. And those who raised notes of concern, those who had cautionary advice were largely disregarded. And it's amazing if you look at the Senate vote and how lopsided it was, in some ways it could be argued that the nay votes in the Senate, the 15 senators who voted no on PNTR, they do share some, you could argue, some personality traits. They are a very interesting grab bag of members. Of course, the most interesting pairing would be Senator Helms, the Republican, the legendary conservative from North Carolina, and Senator Wellstone, the legendary progressive from Minnesota. They both voted no. Mr. President, I sincerely fear that this bill will be, I think it will be of serious consequences because of its profound implications for the future of U.S.-China relations, relations totally unlike the happy ones described by the bill's advocates. I hope I am wrong, but I believe that we will deeply regret this stampede to pass this legislation and the way in which we have taken all the human rights, religious freedom, right to organize, all of those concerns, and we've just put them in parentheses, put them in brackets as if they don't exist, they're not important. I think we will regret that. I dare to say there were probably very few consequential votes where they were on the same side and that they found themselves together and in fact supporting one another's amendments and and had an interesting alliance on this issue and could even argue they forged some mutual respect on this particular issue. Again, that populism, the right version and the left version, really finds important expression during this vote and I think were, were some of the seeds or at least the beginning fertilization of those seeds that really came to fruition most notably in 2016 and seemed to show no sign of aging at this point. A lot very important at that moment. Jonathan, I would add, to me, the the two most interesting yes votes in the Senate retrospectively were those of Sam Brownback, Republican of Kansas, and Jeff Sessions, Republican of Alabama. Sam Brownback today is the Trump administration's ambassador at large for international religious freedom and is not merely a spokesman, but I would say an icon of the evangelical human rights community. And I I, I dare say that if Sam Brownback were back in the Senate today and the vote were up, it would not be credible for a member like him to vote in favor of PNTR. And if you think about Jeff Sessions as the first senator to endorse Donald J. Trump as a candidate for the presidency, as someone who's populist, pro-manufacturing vision, especially with respect to immigration, very much influenced 
President Trump and his campaign before the presidency, it's kind of shocking to look back and see that he voted for PNTR. It appears that he was asked once about the vote and he said he would have done it differently a second time around. So those to me, as we think of where the political system is today, those to me are the two most significant yay votes. That also leads to an important point that I wanted to raise, which is that, as we all know, there had been populist economic leaders prior to the PNTR vote, but their politics had never quite caught on. They had moments of prominence. I'm thinking, of course, about uh, Dick Gephardt, the great House member from Missouri, Democrat, and also Patrick Buchanan, the one-time speechwriter for Richard Nixon, who became really a leader on the populist right in challenging George W. Bush's father, George H.W. Bush, during the Republican presidential primaries of 1992, some would say contributing to George H.W. Bush's defeat at the hands of Bill Clinton. But although they gained some prominence and, and some attention, neither Gephardt nor Buchanan's politics prevailed. And that was, of course, before PNTR. And it's interesting that following PNTR, the politics of Gephardt and Buchanan, very different in certain ways, but on trade and domestic manufacturing and these populist economic issues, I would argue there was quite a bit of overlap. Their position really has become, in some ways, increasingly the orthodoxy of the Democratic and Republican parties. If you look at uh, Joe Biden's comments in his acceptance speech for the Democratic nomination, so many of those quotes could could have come out of the mouth of Dick Gephardt. And again, would not have been uttered, I think, in an era where the perceived negative consequences of PNTR weren't so prominent in the political system. So it seems to me a case can be made that PNTR and its perceived consequences, they were the intervening event that took the the sort of the pro-tariff, anti-trade, anti-globalist, anti-China politics that had not been successful in the 1990s and actually made them much more resonant and the politics that we see increasingly dominant today. Jonathan, I would add that one impetus for the passage of TNTR was the deterioration of the China Hawk community. I think the election in 2000 in Taiwan of non-KMT leadership really made the life of the pro-Taiwanese voices on the right much more difficult. And in addition, I think anti-China advocacy for decades had really been perceived by many as kind of déclassé and extremist. That whole sort of fringy right of center community that William F. Buckley and National Review played a, a key role in pushing outside the tent of acceptability, that community was the community associate, most closely associated with hawkishness on, on China. And I think what's shocking today is how many of the China hawks of today are making you know, similar arguments to the China hawks of the mid-1990s, who were seen as throwbacks rather than futurist prognosticators of two decades hence. It's a great point, John, and I do think that that optimism of the 1990s, and you say, you know, the, the the appreciation in the stock market, but also the way the United States stood astride the world as an almost unquestioned victor, it seemed nearly preposterous that the United States would be concerned about the rise of China. Of course, there were people who were concerned about the rise of China, and people noted their very prominent history of technological success, of civilization building. Um, and again, so it wasn't as if everyone dismissed the potential of the Chinese to be a world power, but the United States was in such a strong position that it seemed at some level, as you said, anachronistic 
uh, an entire uh, entirely a throwback to believe that some sort of bilat you know bilateral trade arrangement or PNTR could lead to the demise of the United States or in even meaningfully impact the United States negatively. Jeremy, really welcome your thoughts on sort of the as best as we can tell the Chinese perspective and so how they look at P- the relationship today, looked at it then, the, the the role of trade in the relationship and how you think it might impact their decision-making going forward? Well, I think one important consideration is a political change which has taken place in the United States over the past couple decades and whose interpretation by the Chinese, I think, remains unclear. And that change is the growing r- political rift between corporate America and key political constituencies. I think that the concern about the US-China economic relationship today, that concern is tied to broader political concerns about the role of the private sector more broadly. And so it's not just that US politics has lost the optimism that it had in the 1990s, but more narrowly, US politics has lost some of the optimism it had about the private sector in the 1990s. And this shift that has taken place in the United States, it's unclear how it is being interpreted in China. For years, decades, arguably centuries, Chinese elites have sought the validation of Western elites in various areas, not only in the private sector, also in international politics, thinking about the United Nations, other international forums, Davos-type forums as well, where the Chinese have paid a lot of attention over the years. And the future trajectory of the U.S.-China economic relationship, I think, will be shaped by China's relationship with U.S. elites, even as those elites themselves begin to see erosion of their political standing in the United States. And I think it's unclear where this trend is going to head in the next years, decades. What will be the position of these U.S. elites Will China continue to seek their favor? Will U.S. elites, uh, business elites, be able to rebuild their base of political support in the United States? I think this may be one of the key questions for the coming years. And Jeremy, even though the House vote that occurred in May of 2000, there were 57 Republicans out of the Republican majority who who voted no uh, on PNTR. I think, although that's not an insignificant number by any means on such an important vote, I think that 57 number understates the anxiety at the time within the Republican conference in the House. I think there was an understanding that this was a very consequential vote. There was significant anti-China sentiment uh, within the conference. But I think the alliance that had been forged uh, between the Republican majority and the business community was so strong and so important that it was pretty clear that this was a this was something that was considered a must-do agenda item for uh, the, the business community, and that the Republican majority really was expected to deliver on trade and to deliver on PNTR uh, for China in particular. And so I think Republicans really did put their faith in the corporate community and uh, really did take the insights and feedback of the corporate community seriously and, and proceeded. But I think, again, the perception uh, that the trade-offs were not nearly as favorable as had been promised has played a big role in eroding support within the Republican Party 
uh, for corporate America. And, and so I do think it is one of the seminal moments, if we're going to trace sort of how did this division occur between corporate America and the Republican Party, an, an alliance that had been so strong uh, for, for, for many, many years, certainly had its ups and downs, but I think reached its zenith right around this period of 2000. If we look back uh, at some of the promises that perhaps were overstated, I do think we can trace how we got to your point, Jeremy, to the current moment of such dissatisfaction. Of course, there was always uh, not I don't want to overstate it, but there was always you know very substantial tension between sort of the pro-trade, uh, you know, pro-business voices, pro-market voices in, in, in corporate America and the Democratic Party. You know, that's a given. Um, and it's not surprising that, you know, 138 uh, Democrats voted no on PNTR, although a surprising 73 voted yes. Uh, hard to imagine today those numbers you know, remotely being what they were what they were then. But I think it makes sense to just step back for a second and look at what what was promised. Really, what what were uh, the assurances that were given that made the case, especially I think on the right, you know, among Republicans, to support PNTR with China. And I think it comes down to to several key promises. One was this idea of market access, the idea that uh, China already had not the access it has today, but substantial access to the U.S. market, and PNTR simply would, would ensure that American companies had access to China's market to create some kind of equi equilibrium uh, you know, in, in the relationship. And in fact, that was one of the key promises of the Clinton administration, uh, you know, which said that, quote, a PNTR would provide American farmers, businesses, and industries with market access to the world's most populous nation. End quote. That was really sort of the, the core, uh, you know, the, the core promise. Now, of course, the way it's worked out ever since, uh, that market access never really has developed, especially in key sectors. And Jeremy, I think it's really worth a comment from you because you looked at this very carefully on what really has been the market access, not just in the past twenty years, but especially in the past five or six. Well, the you know the the market access has it's had its ups and downs, and there have been moments of optimism. And I, I think, you know, as recently as perhaps five or six years ago, there was some optimism that U.S. firms would able would be able to increase their market access in China. That optimism has, I think, almost entirely disappeared with the perhaps noteworthy exception of Tesla's market access in China. But more broadly, you know, there has been a decline in U.S. market access in China going back to around 2000, the 2005 to 2010 era when China began blocking large U.S. tech companies. Since then, over a decade ago, U.S. firms have found it more difficult to gain market access in China, although uh, there have been significant differences across industries. I think most generally, it appears that China enables or really welcomes the market presence of US and other Western companies when, when China's leadership feels that China needs still needs to benefit from that knowledge. So for example, look at the automotive sector, where uh, in many ways, China has been fairly welcoming to Western companies in recent years. The auto sector is appears to be one of the great sources of frustration for China's leadership because it is one of the sectors in which China's neighboring rivals, South Korea and Japan, have really excelled in recent decades. I would also add that China's IP theft of you know key American industrial 
secrets and American industrial processes did a great deal to undermine support within the business community post PNTR for the US China you know, trade relationship. And I think as that IP theft grew in its intensity and affected more and more companies, it really made it harder and harder for the US corporate community to maintain the same level of enthusiasm for the bilateral trade relationship. So I think the failure to gain market access at the levels that had been imagined, particularly in tech, plus the IP theft, those things together, uh, I think really did contradict some of the, the, the promises and, and really dashed some of the greatest hopes at the time that PNTR was enacted into law. The second area that I wanted to explore uh, in terms of assurances or promises that didn't quite come to fruition, and, and maybe this is the most uh, the most jarring one, is in the area of human rights. Then-Senator William Roth of Delaware, who's Republican, argued that in passing PNTR, quote, Congress will actually take its most important step by far in fostering democracy and improving human rights in China. And as I referenced earlier in the podcast, at the time, there was almost an unshakable confidence that the greater trade relationship would lead to a, a, a bigger uh, Chinese middle class, and that, again, inevitably would lead to liberalization and democratization. That was almost an unquestioned truism. Very few people relatively uh, thought that the Chinese would be able to grow economically with the trade relationship and maintain uh, the Communist Party of China's control over the people and the system as it, as it has. For the more China liberalizes its economy, the more it will liberate the potential of its people. And so I think, again, the promise on human rights contrasts most starkly, arguably, with what's emerged in subsequent years. The human rights situation in China today is alarming and has certainly worsened significantly in recent years. And I, I want to point to, I think, an important indicator of how much optimism there was among U.S. elites in the 1990s and how that optimism has collapsed. And I'd, I'd like to point to the Free Tibet movement, which arguably has declined significantly in the past decade or two, really reached its apogee sometime, perhaps in the 1990s, maybe very early 2000s. I recall all the bumper stickers in the DC area where people would proudly display their support for the Tibetan movement. You don't see that anymore. You see alarm, you see concern, but you don't see optimism among Western elites about America's ability to improve the lives of Chinese citizens from a human rights point of view. I have had the tremendous opportunity to travel around various parts of China that have been the focus of human rights abuses, unfortunately, and there does not seem to be any clear path forward, uh, certainly from the point of view of American elites, to improving the situation. And so it's hard to see this. This has been a, a tremendous shift in how Western elites view China over the past two decades, going from optimism about human rights, or at least some kind of hope, to just grave concern. And Johnny, I think it'd be great for you to explore a little bit the relationship between the failure of increased trade to improve human rights and to lead to any sort of meaningful economic liberalization that benefited the United States beyond the factors Jeremy cited, how has that been involved in the decline of free market thinking within the Republican Party? To fully answer your question, it's important to think about the formative experiences of the decision makers on PNTR. 
I think you, you quoted uh, Senator Roth of Delaware, who, who arguably today is best known for the Roth IRA. And I think it's significant that the father of the Roth IRA was, was quoted um, in, in response to the signing of PNTR by President Clinton in October, that PNTR, quote, is not just important in strategic terms. It also reflects a practical commitment to sustained continued economic growth and rising standards of living here at home. You know, if you look at what Alan Greenspan, who was the, the Fed chair at the time, said at the White House in May 2000. History has demonstrated that implicit in any removal of power from central planners and broadening of market mechanisms, as would occur under WTO, is a more general spread of rights to individuals. I think in both of these statements, you can see how policymakers are captive, in a sense, to the perspectives of of uh, yesteryear in their careers. So I think someone like William Roth, who came to the Senate in the 1970s and, and was a member through the stagflation period, through the Arab uh, oil crisis, the you know the rise in gasoline prices. His quote very much reflects a focus on on price, which, which in the in the last five years, uh, although it had certainly decayed previously, has really, uh, you know, been been discredited by a host of populist movements along the political spectrum. You see it in obviously President Trump's uh, views relative to the more supply side. Milton Friedman-inspired views of, of George W. Bush and his advisors. You also see it in the rise of the hipster antitrust movement on the left that um, has been arguing uh, with some degree so far of success from a political perspective that the consumer welfare standard should not be the be-all and end-all of, of antitrust jurisprudence. So you see in that quote how price in terms of rising standards of living really had captured the mindset of politicians responsive to their constituents. And you see in the in the Greenspan quote, a, a kind of libertarian doctrine that you don't expect to see in a, um, you know, Clinton era Greenspan. Encountering this quote, I sort of imagined Greenspan wearing a beret, smoking a Galois while in a salon with Ayn Rand in the village um, in, the, in the earlier part of his career. But it it comes through, and uh, he also, of course, had been involved in the in the Nixon administration, and so w- was affected clearly by the by the opening of China under President Nixon. And I th- I think those quotes represent this high watermark of of a focus on the prices of goods, consumption as really what matters most to voters. I think since the Great Recession, the discrediting of the idea that housing prices would go up in all metropolitan areas forever. Uh, there has been much more of a focus on, on manufacturing as the central component in the flourishing of, of the U.S. population. And you see that in President Trump. And as you mentioned earlier this podcast, Jonathan, you, you saw that in former Vice President Joe Biden's DNC address. PNTR, I think is now seen in that light. One other thing worth exploring is the, is the assessment over the last, say, five or so years that the deterioration in, in, in the working class of the country, and especially the white working class, 
is consistent with the decline in manufacturing employment. There's an economist at the University of Chicago, Eric Hurst, who's done a lot of the groundbreaking research with co-authors. Uh, I don't want to forget to cite to cite them on on the travails of of the working class. And a number of his papers have found that where manufacturing employment deteriorated as a result of PNTR, uh, things like opioid abuse or substance abuse more broadly really picked up. And, and his research also has shown that the, the housing boom that uh, many argue uh, Fed Chairman Greenspan kicked off in 2000 uh, with his uh, monetary policy after, after the dot-com uh, collapse, that that masked uh, until 2007, 2008, 2009, the, the the real deterioration of the white working class. I think you know what we've seen since 2007 through 2009, global financial crisis, Great Recession, whatever you want to call it, is that this community of people that was arguably hurt by PNTR and then aided by the 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 uh, real estate boom of the 2000s. This is a community of, of people, of voters, that is increasingly central to the fates of both parties. So, Johnny, I think that you really have brought us to the crux of the issue, which is what we really should explore uh, with the remaining time uh, we have today. We had the passage of PNTR, these promises made. I think it's important to note that for the United States, PNTR delivered on the core promise of low price goods. And I think that benefit to the American consumer, to the American people is often downplayed excessively. And I think anyone who goes in to a big box retailer or on Amazon or Walmart.com or you know other platforms and buys a television or other consumer good benefits today from really price levels that are shockingly low in many instances. But at the same time, I think it, it was also understated the extent to which there would be a manufacturing job displacement in the United States. So yes, prices have come down. That's well documented. And 20 million jobs were created between 2000 and 2020. So it'd be wrong to say that there hasn't been some meaningful job growth during the last two decades. And there is higher manufacturing productivity uh, that's resulted in the last two decades. But as has been uh, discussed a tremendous length since 2016, uh, 5 million U.S. manufacturing jobs were lost between 2000 and 2020. And I think the concentration of that disruption and the impact it had on communities, as is well known in the industrial Midwest, that was the factor, uh, the, the politically destabilizing factor that really was not properly anticipated uh, in September of 2000. So the question is, what does it mean today? Why does the alliance between Jesse Helms and Paul Wellstone matter going forward? What does it tell us about the future? What are the prospects of this new populism? What does it mean not only for the uh, American domestic political system, but what does it mean for the U.S. relationship with China? And are we looking at something that will correct to what it existed pre-Trump, or do we think this is going to be an extended period and a new policy consensus that will be much more pro-tariff, much more anti-China for the long term. So for some predictions or some some uh, trend analysis, I'll turn, I think, first to to Jeremy. Well, I think there, there are two pieces to this. I think of the Chinese side, the Chinese government's going to go in and out of allowing 
Western companies in uh, to varying degrees. And so uh, I don't think we're going to go to a full embrace, but there could be some period of volatility on the Chinese side. I think on the U.S. side, I would just I would point to the success of Mary Kondo as an indicator of U.S. elite views on uh, lower priced goods. And if if we're moving to a future where people are focused on decluttering and on buying fewer goods and on uh, when they buy goods, buying higher price, perhaps locally sourced goods that they provide some meaning or spark some joy to them. I think that uh, U.S. society may be moving away from its interest in lower priced goods. And Jeremy, as the United States restricts uh, Chinese access to U.S. markets in various ways, and of course, TikTok, Huawei, these are only, you know, these are only a few albeit important examples of perhaps what's to come. What do you think China's reaction will be to less access? Well, I think initially confusion because I think the uh, Chinese framework is for Western uh, businesses to try to enter China and for China to act as the gatekeeper. So for the roles to be reversed, I think will uh, cause confusion among the Chinese elite. And I, I don't think that we can predict uh, what that confusion is going to look like, but uh, it, it might not be uh, stable. It may be erratic. Uh, you know, we may see some strange behaviors, but I would just emphasize the extent to which this new the new system of, um, of America potentially blocking Chinese companies, the extent to which that is novel and uh, uh, potentially may be incomprehensible from the Chinese side. Johnny, your thoughts on the implications for domestic politics, and should we expect more or something else as we go forward? I think we're going to continue to see economic activity put through a defense prism. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, held its um, you know annual conference for its Electronics Resurgence Initiative, which is you know one of numerous U.S. government attempts to rebuild U.S. capacity in semiconductors, given that so much of global capacity is in the People's Republic. And if you uh, look, for example, at the the flagship report of the Defense Department's outpost in Silicon Valley Defense Innovation Unit, used to be called Defense Innovation Unit Experimental or X, you see there, you know, charts and uh, infographics on Chinese investment in U.S. industry that are not unlike um, the charts that a now largely forgotten member of Congress, Kurt Weldon, uh, made in the mid-90s after the Cox uh, Commission report. I think what we're going to begin to see, uh, or we've already begun to see it, but we're going to see more and more of it, is the Defense Department play a role in the industrial base akin to the role it played in the uh, 1950s and 1960s during the Cold War. I think that has a lot of implications for for companies whose products have defense applications. Well, I think what we can say with some confidence is that PNTR and the broken promises of PNTR or the perceived failures of PNTR really did begin the unraveling of the post-war policy consensus. And along with the Iraq War and the Great Recession, delivered a hammer blow 
to the credibility of elites of both parties who supported that that policy consensus. It's quite striking that today the forces that most dominate the thinking of the right and the left, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, uh, were and are avowed opponents of the free trade regime that you know bloomed in full during the 1990s, uh, and in very many ways they tout their own credibility as grounded in their opposition to some of those trade those trade agreements. Going back to where we began, September 19, 2000, that Senate vote really was the vote that changed the world, not just the geopolitics of the US-China great power contest, but also of American domestic politics and the populism we see today. I want to thank my colleagues, Johnny Fluger and Jeremy Furchgott, for joining me today for what I think has been a great discussion. I want to thank Diana Engelman for being the force in organizing this podcast within our firm. And I want to thank Danielle Weinrich for her outstanding research that supported so much of today's conversation. And I want to thank our producer, Noah, for his uh, good technical work. Thank you all for joining us, and please join us again on a future edition of The Political Risk Brief. Thank you.